All right, guys, y'all can be seated real quick. Thanks, Joseph. That I didn't say in his last two services. I'm so thankful for you, dude. You, you truly minister to my heart every time you sing, man. And I'm so grateful. So welcome to Safe Haven. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name's Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Safe Haven. And I get this privilege to teach in this passage that we have before us, and that's Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. So we got a big chunk, and I'm going to add to it. I'm going to add two more verses to that. So we're going to actually read verses 10 through 22. I'm just going to say how mean I was the first service. I made them stand the entire time as we read that. So I learned my lesson quick. So uh, so what we're going to do is read Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 22. Here's the word of the Lord. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, and said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you, will, you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please, let us go three days' journey, into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, And the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Let us pray, guys. Father, as I prayed before, Lord, you know my heart. You know the anxiousness I've had over this passage. You know the desire I also had of teaching on this, Lord. Lord, 
whatever I say that is contrary to your word, Lord, wipe it away. But Lord, everything that affirms your truth, allow your spirit to plant it within our hearts. Allow it to cause growth in our lives, to bear fruit in our lives. Lord, let us go forth and tell everyone of this great I am. God, I'm so thankful for the way you have revealed yourself. Lord, just allow this time to be fruitful. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your truth. And Lord, give me the strength to speak it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, guys. So again, this is a big chunk, and I, there's a lot in this passage before us, and I wish we had a, like two, three hours, and I know y'all would have been excited to stay that long, but we don't. And so I want to encourage all of you to, to kind of dig deeper into this passage because there's so much in it. But as I was preparing to teach on this passage, one word laid heavy on my heart, and that was sufficiency. Sufficiency. Here's the definition of sufficiency. Sufficiency is defined as the quality or condition of being enough. Sufficient in supply, means, or resources. There's enough of it. It is the capacity, ability, competence that satisfies one's need or the condition or quality of being sufficient for its purpose or the end in view. It is totally adequate in itself. Last week, we saw God appearing within a burning bush and commissioning Moses to fulfill God's purpose, appointing him to go to Pharaoh to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And instead of showing eagerness in bringing Israel out of their oppression, his response is a sample of the lack of sufficiency he saw in himself. Who am I? Who am I that I should go? How often do we present ourselves with that same question? Who am I? Who am I as a mother? Who am I as a father? Who am I as a husband or wife? Who am I in this life? Moses saw the same difficulties in himself that we often see in ourselves. When he thought about the people that he would have to deal with, there's the same difficulties we often think about of the people we deal with each and every day. And when Moses imagined this new role that he was called to, he remembered his past attempts and his past failings, as we often do ourselves. But as we see in God's response to Moses' inadequacies, if the Lord has manifestly called you to some task for which you feel utterly insufficient for, he gives us a precious promise to rest on. Certainly, I will be with you. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Is it sufficient to meet Moses' need? And is it sufficient to meet our need? The divine promise that he gives is still the same today. For all who heard the gospel call and who've responded to it in faith, this is the same promise we have. It's the same promise that Christ gave to those he commissioned, his followers, Go and make disciples of all the nations. He promises us in the end of this great commission, I am with you always. But let's be honest though. When we think of what is involved in the gospel, do we think that this promise is sufficient? 
Or when we think of the opposition that we will receive from it, does it bring us more resolve? 2020 has been a year that has caused us to think about sufficiency. It has revealed a lot of inconsistencies we have on the matter. And I know it's revealed a lot within my own life. I thought about this one question, is God sufficient? And how I would answer that within the events of 2020. When I looked at how I reacted to COVID-19, did my actions point to a God who is sufficient? Or did it point to something else? When I look at my thoughts on rioters and the shifts we see in the government, does those thoughts point to a God who is sufficient? Or does it point to something else? Or when I look at how I responded to racial tensions, does those response reflect a God who is sufficient? Or does it reflect something else that I'm depending on? Is God sufficient? If we don't have the answer to that question, the world is ready to fill in the gaps we have on it and point us to what is. They will bring out their sufficiency scale and place your race, your experiences, your privilege, your fears, your desires, and gender, your age upon it and answer what is enough. What should you rely on for health? What should you rely on for protection? What should you rely on for well-being, your injustices? And it always points us away from the sufficiency of God and his purposes. When God told Moses, I will be with you, the question we have to ask as believers, is he enough? In our passage this week, we continue in this dialogue between God and Moses. Last week, we dealt with who am I? This week, we're dealing with who are you? So as we see God responding to another difficulty that Moses sees in God's appointment of him to fulfill this task, and it shows us three principles of the sufficiency of God in our lives, that will help us understand what it means to be a servant of God and trust in it. And the first principle is found in verses 13 through 15, which is the sufficiency of God's revealed nature, the sufficiency of God's revealed nature. And you're gonna probably hate me at the end because I'm gonna say sufficiency a lot, but I'm hoping that you'll leave here saying God is sufficient. So that's my hope. So look with me at verse 13. As Moses brings up this hypothetical thought, verse 13, Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now we can't fault Moses here. His hypothetical thought that he had is certainly a possibility. For there will be no visible presence of God that would accompany him to perform this task. He was to go alone to these uh, enslaved Hebrews and say, hey, I'm here to deliver you. I'm your divinely sent deliverer. Let's rise up and get out of here. I mean, if anybody came in here and said that to us, we would think they're crazy. And I'm sure this, that that statement didn't make an impression on them. Most of them, though, have lost their identity within the gods of the Egyptians and within this culture of oppression. So it would have been common for those surrounded by a variety of gods that fulfill different functions to ask for the name of that God. Yet within this hypothetical question Moses brings is also a question of proof. Prove to us 
that this God is worthy of our confidence. Define this God for us. Tell us of his character, of his attributes. How can he help me? And it's a reminder for us still today as believers that we go forth telling lost sinners of a God they never seen nor believe in. And the statements show us God is still the demand of a doubting heart. So when Moses asking for God's name, it was a way for him to ask God to define himself. Because names bring meaning, right? I mean, it's still the same today. Parents, I know we all have spent hours looking for the perfect name for our kids. We look for the uniqueness, the cool factor, or something meaningful behind the name. I mean, it's probably passed down through generations. And what our hope is, is that this name will help shape their lives, their identity, who they will become in the future. So names have meanings. And here's a glimpse into my mind. I always wanted to name one of my kids after my favorite superhero, which is Wolverine. I'm an X-Man fan. And I know that would have been weird if I named my son Wolverine. That would just kind of be weird. But we learn in X-Men, his actual name is Logan. And so when Logan was born, I was so excited to give him this name. I was like, I give him this name, no one's going to mess with him. He's going to bring out his little swords from his hands, and he's going to be, you know, superpower. He's going he's to heal. Nobody's going to mess with him. He's going to grow out these sideburns and everything, and he's going to be awesome. Unfortunately, he still hasn't developed his superhero powers yet. And I'm thinking he's going to do that in his teens, though. Everybody says when you get your teens, they go crazy. And so I'm thinking all that built-up energy will hit then. And so he'll start developing that. But within that thought, though, we can kind of see how when we name our kids, sometimes they don't match that definition of that name. So it's kind of different from back then. Their names truly defined them. They truly defined them. Names within Scripture were truly a way to define a certain person or place, giving us a meaning to understand them. So a person's name and a place could actually change as they changed or it changed. And I got some examples, such as Abraham is one of them. His name changed from Abraham, I mean Abram, to Abraham which means father of a multitude. And this new name defined his new calling and role in God's plan. Isaac's name meant he laughed, defining the laughter of Abraham and Sarah, both the impossibility and fulfillment of God's promise of a child. Jacob's name was a description of his birth. Later, God changed his name to Israel, defining his relationship to God and with man. So throughout the Bible, names were definitions for us to have meaning behind certain places and certain people. So Moses sought after a definition of this God that revealed himself within this burning bush. God simply says, I'm up to be. He's to be. I am who I am. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the personal name God gave to Moses. I am, which is based on the Hebrew verb to be. And it's commonly translated Yahweh, Jehovah, or Lord in capital letters in your Bible. And when we look at this I am and to be, it's literally saying I be who I be. 
And I wish we can just say that all the time. I be who I be, but we can't. But I would love to go deeper into the translations that we have, Yahweh, Jehovah, and Lord, because there's a lot of fruit there, but we, we don't have a lot of time. And, but if you want to learn more, and if I have some theology nerds out there, I, I beg you to dive into it. But if you want to learn and get a good laugh, uh, Google this one video. And this could be used for kids, too, because it's got cartoon characters in it. Donald and Connell meet the JWs, okay? Donald and Connell meet the JWs, and it's by Lutheran satire. And you're going to learn a lot, and you're going to laugh a lot about how we got to these names, Jehovah, Yahweh, and Lord. And you'll thank me later, too. It's hilarious. But what I really want to dive into about God's name is what does his name mean? What does it tell us about God? And it conveys this, the active self-existence and presence of God. The active self-existence and presence of God to be. He is the God who had no beginning, has no end. He is the God who is self-sufficient and self-determined owing to his existence to no one other than himself. The God who is, is the source of all definitions. He cannot be defined. He can only truly define. God is the essence of sufficiency. He's the only thing that can actually define that term. He lacks nothing. Moses endeavored to define who he was, as do most of us, again, who am I? How often do we redefine ourselves each and every year? Each new year, we make new commitments that are meant to shape who we want to be that year. But God is not like us. He is. And he will always be sufficient. He never changes. He's, there's no need for him to change. You and I have to say, I am what I've become. I am what I was born to be. I am what circumstances have made me. And if we look at Paul, who had a, a deeper and better understanding of this, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God is the only one who can say, I am who I am. Or better yet, I be who I be. Yet look with me at verse 15 also. And before we read verse 15, think about this. If God just left us with this personal name. It would left us looking to a God who transcends us. And last week we looked at that, how he transcends. He would be impossible to know since he is impossible to define. But God de desired to carry this message even further and revealed even more of who he is and his divine nature. So in verse 15, he says this, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. See, when God revealed his name, I am, it spoke to his self-existence, self-sufficiency, and to his transcendence. Yet in this additional revelation we see in verse 15, it spoke to the intimacy and relational aspects of God's character, his eminency. Again, that's another term we saw last week. He's near to us. It shows us that even though he cannot be defined, he can be known in how he reveals himself, his self-revelation. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, 
the God who reveals himself, a God of unconditional promises, the covenant-keeping God, and declares, this is my name forever, my memorial name to all generations. This is my definition. He can never be reduced to any one attribute of his. And to know God is to know the creator, the definer, the absolute determiner and Lord of all. For us, God reveals himself throughout the entirety of scripture. And we can know him. We can know him. For scripture tells us that the I am of the burning bush is fully declared in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. He is the eternal I am, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who wrapped up his revealed nature when he said, before Abraham was, I am. So the principle contained in his name for us is that we are to go forth declaring the name and nature of God as he has been revealed. We shouldn't try to make any attempts to prove his existence as if he needs help. He's already done that. And we shouldn't waste time with man's wisdom and worldviews and efforts to redefine his meaning as if he made a mistake or if, as if he needs to be judged by something. Our business is to proclaim God and how his being as he has revealed himself in and through Jesus Christ. That is our business. How he revealed himself in and through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth in him. The summing up of all things. That shows the sufficiency in Christ. He is sufficient. Which takes us to our next principle that is found in verses 16 through 22. So it's the, pretty much the rest of the passage. And that is the sufficiency of God's prescribed deliverance. The sufficiency of God's prescribed deliverance. So look with me first at 16 through 18. It says this. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hevite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. So after God revealed his personal name to Moses, he revealed further instructions on how to proceed by giving him the words to say, 
the purpose that God had for them and the results that he would receive from those words. Essentially, a script to use. Notice in verse 16, though, how God grounds his words in delivering the Israelites. It's grounded on covenantal history and the promises he has made. This was just one step that was unfolding the covenant promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see that in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. He revealed to Abraham the events that would take place and promised that they will come out with many possessions. In Genesis 46, 3 through 4, we see God encouraging Jacob to follow through and going to Egypt and assured him of the outcomes that he will be brought up again. In God revealing his prescribed deliverance, Moses had the assurance and comfort of knowing that this promise-keeping God was his God, that he would truly be with him, and that he was just another thread being woven into a greater plan of deliverance that is unfolding ultimately and gloriously through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, we, we've hit this passage many times, but it's great truth here. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in this last day has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Moses was another way, another portion that was unfolding a greater covenant transaction that was between God the Father and God the Son. He ordained Christ Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the only mediator between God and man. So this is a far better covenant because it brings all who believe in Christ through a new and better way in which God gave our Lord from all eternity past a people to be his, a people to be by him delivered, a people to be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, a people to be adopted as sons and daughters through him. This is the very promise of salvation that was revealed to Adam after the fall. And this is the promised redemption that is unfolded within the covenant history of Israel. And this is the promised deliverance that is unfolding before our very eyes and that Moses is joining into. But notice also that in giving Moses this prescribed deliverance, it is sufficient to do the task he failed at once before. Before, he acted on his own glory, by his own initiative, by his own strength, and for his own justice. This time, God gave him the words that not only revealed God himself and his will, but the only thing sufficient to save. Notice how everything in his word is definitely determined. I will bring you up out of the of the afflictions. They will pay heed to what you say. You with the elders will come to the king of Egypt. You will say to him. God is the only one who can make sure claims. And if 2020 hasn't proven to you that we are all insufficient to plan the next day out and the next day, the next year, I don't know what will. I know I've planned this whole year out and 2020 came. It blew it all up. It's done. 
But God can. He is able. He is sufficient. There is no contingencies. No, I will do my part if you do yours. We have to depend on one another. We have to depend on each one playing out their parts. God doesn't. There's no outside worldly resource to assist or prop up God's word. He does it alone by his word. There's no possibility of his divine purpose failing. Even if it looks like it's failing, it isn't. Because look with me at verse 19. This is what God says. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. I mean, if we heard that, and I can imagine... Moses hearing that and saying, well, why do I even know? He's not even going to listen to me. You just said you know. But that statement, I know, is a statement that demonstrates to us that he has all knowledge. He knows all things. His knowledge is sufficient. Not only that, but he is revealing his purpose behind it. Even within Pharaoh's hardness. He says, so I will stretch out my hands to showcase my power. I will grant this people favor to showcase my mercy. You will plunder the Egyptians to showcase my justice. He is not only showing the sufficiency of his deliverance, but he's also showing the sufficiency of his justice, of his power, of his mercy, of his grace. Guys, he's, he's revealing more of himself, even within things that look like it's impossible. So many doubt that God is working because we look at the events around us and we often interpret God's sufficiency through the news stories we hear, through the news cycles we see. Instead of doing the opposite, interpreting events through the sufficiency of God. Because God regularly works by contrary means to produce his desired outcome. He works through contrary means to produce his desired outcomes, which is always for his glory and for the good of his people. That is what God is revealing to us. That's what God revealed to Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, he says this, Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Friends, this should be the firm ground of our sufficiency, the word of God. The comfort and the knowledge of the God's self-revelation is that he is the promise-keeping God who places his covenant name as a seal upon his words. The joy we have as believers is that we serve a God who never forgets and never breaks his promises. Like Moses we have been given a prescribed deliverance that is displayed for us in the word of God that we all hold in our hands. This is our burning bush that is never consumed by the fire. And it reveals to us the great I am to his glory. This is why we read it. 
This is why we apply it within our lives because it is the right prescription for us. It progressively unfolds God's plan of salvation and without it, we would still be lost. It recounts how God revealed himself to his people through creation, through covenants, through prophets, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. And that's the best point. It reveals to us that Christ, again, stood as the mediator and surety of God's covenant promises. Meaning for those who are found in Christ, he held your debt, satisfied your payment completely, and totally removed the penalty against you. Unlike Moses, in which the deliverance depended on a weak man who was incapable to completely save he was incapable to put away sin. Christ did as God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, by being willing to undertake what we could not. You and I had nothing sufficient to save us. Christ gave it to us. He humbled himself, being made under the same law as us, perfectly fulfilled it. Then he underwent the punishment that was due to us, which we should have suffered. We should have endured that. He was made sin, a curse for us, crucified, died, enduring and satisfying the full wrath of God, delivering us from the wrath of God because he was sufficient to do so so that not one single drop of God's wrath would be placed on those who are his. And on the third day, he arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of his father, always interceding for those who trust in him. He is sufficient. And we have a, so much sufficiency in him that he still does it today. And just like Moses was commanded in verse 16 to go, gather, and say, we have been commanded by the same great covenant-keeping God to do the same. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore, make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is the right prescription for us. This, is, this, prescrip this prescribed deliverance is sufficient for all of life. His words, his purposes are sufficient. And this brings us to our last principle that we're going to examine today. And that is the sufficiency of God's divine power. The sufficiency of God's divine power. And what I want to do is kind of reinforce what we just looked at by showing you the negative. By showing you the negative. So what we're going to do is jump into next week's passage and look at the first verse of that. So I hope Hank will forgive me for doing this. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. And again, I just want you to see the depth and the importance of what we just saw. It says this, Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Now just, just listen to those words. And I want to do a quick recap. Just think that in, in your head and let's think about this. The Lord had favored Moses by this awe-inspiring sight of the burning bush that was never consumed by the fire. He had spoken of his concern and his knowledge of the afflicted Hebrews. He had promised that he would be with Moses. He had declared and assured that the deliverance of Israel from Egypt 
and that God himself would take them to the promised land. But with all of this and with all that we saw of God's sufficiency, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to silence his difficulties. It wasn't enough to silence his unbelief. It wasn't enough to silence his rebellious heart. Moses replied in simple terms, you could be wrong. It might not be enough. He was still clinging to his own wisdom, still clinging to the wisdom of this world that would say it's impossible to free Israel from Pharaoh without something better. You must have an army behind you to do something like that. It's a wisdom that looks at the exterior realities of Moses' life. I mean, think about it. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's courts. He enjoyed the privileges of it. He never experienced the afflictions of his people. And when he went for justice, he murdered somebody. So he's a murderer. And when he tried to uh, have justice with his own people, they rejected it. How could he go back as their divinely sent deliverer with just this message? Why would they listen to him? And the answer is, it's not about Moses. It's not about Moses. It's about God. Moses is not the hero of the story. God is. God in his divine power is delivering Israel and revealing his glory through his chosen servant's weakness. How else can we explain and demonstrate his, since he had demonstrated his insufficiency and lack of faith, how can we explain how he became who he was in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? I mean, look with me at Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. And we're going to see something interesting because it doesn't, match up to what we just read. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. My question is, how can Moses be honored in such a way? Where did we see that within our passage? And the answer is, it can only be viewed and understood by the divine power of the great I am working within him. That, can, that, that power that was working within him could only bring his human heart to abandon all creaturely props and trust in God and who he is. And that's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Isn't that what God just revealed to us? Isn't that what he just revealed to Moses in, within this script? God prepared this good work beforehand through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob for Moses to walk in it. And by grace, God in his divine power worked in him faith so that the result of the works is all of God's and not of him. It's not about 
Moses. It's not about us. It's about how God's divine power was working in Moses. Henry, we are made of precisely the same material that Moses was. There is in us the same evil, unbelieving, rebellious heart in every one of us. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. We fit in that category. Our only safeguard is to cast ourselves before the self-sufficient, self-determined God and implore him to pardon our helplessness and keep down and subdue our wickedness, which dwells in us. And there's a false gospel that we believe in and lean on so much that's preached today that the measure of our faith and our faithfulness will determine our success in the Lord's servant. I must believe more. I must do this. I must do that for God to accomplish his will. And in the same way, there's a false worldview that measures the outcome of the Lord's church by measuring the people within it. There's just a whole bunch of hypocrites in that church. It thrives in unbelief. It festers in the minds who doubt the sufficiency of God. God is not limited by our failure. He's not limited by our failure. Moses was timid, hesitant, fearful, unbelieving, rebellious. Yet God used him by his divine power. So let us cling to who God is. Embrace the wonders of his grace that enables us to place God's sufficiency between our difficulties. Because if God were to wait until he found a human his instrument that was worthy or that was perfect or fit to be used by him, he would go on waiting until the end of time. And if, he, and if his power was dependent on my own strength and my own resources, then the end wouldn't be far away because I already failed. My whole point is not for you to look at my life, but look at Christ. Trust in the sufficiency of his divine power because as verse 21 showed us, if God was able to change the hearts of the Egyptians to show favor to people they hated, he is able to change the hearts of mankind. He is. So in closing, I would love to wrap all this up in an illustration. I want to kind of get personal with you uh, and tell you a little bit about my own life. Two years ago, this past June, a close dear friend of mine from high school died of cancer. He was very young. He was in his 30s too. And before he died, God allowed me an opportunity to spend time with him and with his family. And my heart was kind of first astonished uh, that I was getting this opportunity to reconnect with someone I drifted away from and catch up. And my hope was to encourage him in the gospel in these last days. At the time, I didn't realize how naive I was. Because when I walked into this hospital room, saw him in his bed, he was gasping for air, gasping in pain, and longing for a miracle of healing. His parents was wanting him to be healed. And all I could do was nothing. I froze. I froze. I had this Bible within my hand that showed the sufficiency of God in all things. And I thought to myself, is he enough? Is he enough? 
If I could go back in time and answer that question, I would. But God, in his mercy, didn't allow me to sit in my misery. He didn't allow me to sit idly by. Even though I couldn't speak what I wanted to say, but the truth about God and who he was burned deeply in me that I stayed up all night writing him this letter that explained the sufficiency of Christ in our death. So the next day, I was able to give it to his mom and I asked her to read it to him and I was hoping that this letter would encourage both of them. And luckily it did. And at his funeral, she asked me to read it. And I was grateful for that opportunity. God in his great mercy allowed me to read something I wasn't able to speak and say what I wasn't able to say. In fact, he allowed me to say everything that I wanted to say to a group of people that was in attendance of this funeral. So I was able to tell everybody there of the sufficiency of Christ. And the reason why I wanted to tell you that, the only thing I can do in that moment is boast in God. Because that moment revealed my own weakness, my own sin, my own unbelief, my lack of faith in who God is. And so I'm grateful for it. But in the beginning, I said, as believers, we have to ask, is he enough? And I hope you see by the principles we looked at, it is the wrong question to ask. It's the wrong question to ask because it's not dependent on our answer. It's not dependent on you affirming it. God is not defined by us. He is. He is sufficient. The question we have to ask is not, is he enough? But is this self-sufficient God, is he working faith in me by the sufficiency of his divine power? Am I walking in the sufficiency of his prescribed deliverance that is shown to me through his word that he purposed in Christ? And do I find satisfaction and enjoyment in the sufficiency of his revealed nature? For this is what it means to be a servant of God, the sufficiency of God working in our lives and through our lives. And again, 2020 has made us look at what is sufficient. It has caused us to look for what is enough. And if you're hearing this message and you're thinking, well, I, I don't know if God is enough. I don't know if he is working in me. My difficulties are too great for me. In fact, I don't even know if God is even out there does he even have this year under control? There's good news. There's good news. And it comes from two of my favorite Bible passages. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says this. This is Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And just listen to that. There's a heavy load when you think of the sufficiency you need. There's a heavy load when you look to yourself for that sufficiency and, and to the world. It's, it's weary. And what does Jesus tell us? I will give you rest. He promises. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why do we need to learn from him? Well, God is revealing himself. He's revealing who he is. Listen to the next. For I am gentle and humble in heart. God's revelation is for us to know him, and it points to how he is gentle and humble. 
It points to Christ. And the results from that is you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say, I'm going to take your burden away from you. He doesn't say that this burden is going to just disappear. But what he says that you're going to find so much sufficiency in him that those burdens are light compared to him. They're light. In John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So last passage we looked at, he's saying, come to me. This passage tells us that those who come to him belong to him. They belong to him. If you're sitting here wondering if these promises that Christ is offering to us, this rest, this peace, this gentleness, is this mine? Ask yourself, am I going to him? Because he says, if I, you're going to me, you're mine. I won't cast you away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. God's not leaving us in the dark. He's showing who he is. He is the covenant-keeping God who offers eternal life. And he says, come to me, come to me. And he says, but, it, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last days. Guys, look to our self-sufficient Christ. Look to who he is. He's revealed himself in his entirety. God says, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know my will, look to Christ. Look to Christ and live in him. He is sufficient. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the way you have revealed yourself. Lord, I ask to use my weakness and encouraging them and all who have heard this message to look to you and your sufficiency, Lord, for I am insufficient. God, I have nothing to give but who you are. God, soften our hearts to hear that. Soften our hearts to know that there's nothing anyone can offer but Christ. That's all we have. Lord, I'm grateful for your mercy. I'm grateful for the way you have loved us. I'm grateful for your grace that we have in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone out there who doesn't believe or who's searching for answers, Lord, let them see who you are. Lord, let them believe in it. Let them trust it. Let them cling to it when they are in dire need of it. God, this year has brought so many difficulties in people's lives, so many questions. But Lord, you are in control and you are sufficient. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray.